So we, um, we humans are completely preoccupied with the outward. Like when you wake up in the morning, for instance, you don't roll out of bed and check your pulse to make sure you're still alive. You're not, you just trust everything on the inside's working. What you do do is you go over to the bathroom, check in the mirror, and see how your face is doing. Uh, and you think, what is this? I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Like, that's not what I remember that looking like yesterday. Um, and I know for myself, I wake up and I don't wear my glasses to bed. I do take them off uh, when I go to bed. And uh, I look in the mirror and I look like a turtle. Apparently, I've been told that I look like a turtle with my glasses off. I try to tell people that that's what everyone looks like who wears glasses. When they take them off, you just automatically look like a turtle. I don't get it, but it's just, it's a thing. Uh, But I've been told that specifically I look like Franklin the turtle. Um, So in the morning, I'm greeted by Franklin the turtle with his little hat and backpack on in the morning. Uh, So, and, and then you spend the next anywhere from two minutes to two hours getting it fixed and ready for the public. Um, but nowhere in that do you, you know, feel your heart, you know, is, is it still beating? How's it doing? You know, uh, we don't do that. We're, we're, con- we're just, we're consumed and preoccupied with, with the outward. And, you know, that, that kind of idea makes me think of, of a passage like Luke 18, where you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee, nice, moral, religious guy, tax collector, the exact opposite. And they roll up to the temple and you've got the Pharisee who is praying to God, you know, out loud, you know, probably like this, just, you know, making a scene before God and saying, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like all those terrible people out there in the world, the adulterers and all these crazy people such as this tax collector over here. And then you've got the tax collector who won't even come near. He's just on the ground beating his chest saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. So you've, you've, you've got this typecast of the religious that they're just utterly consumed with the outward. And I mean, you see that so much in scripture. You see it in the Old Testament with Isaiah and God, I don't know how many times, tells the Israelites, just quit having your stupid worship services. I mean, you, there's nothing coming up to me from your hearts. It's just a bunch of tambourines and people sacrificing things. And I don't care about that. Like, I I just don't care about just empty outward things. And, but we do. And I think that the reason that, that we do care so much about outward things and try to get nice and religious is because we can modify that. We can modify our outward appearance before God. We can become our own God in that way. Instead of letting God be God and doing a work in us, we create a system of morality by which we can save ourselves. And so let me ask you, I was in chapel earlier this week and one of my professors asked this question. He said, which is more dangerous of the two, an outspoken atheist who leads a life of utter paganism? Is that more dangerous in the world? Or is the more dangerous person the morally decent religious person? Which is more dangerous? Which is more prone to just spin off? Well, at least the pagan, he's honest with himself. At least he knows he's jacked up and everybody else is. He's not trying to hide that. There's consistency there. 
But the religious person, who's morally decent, they don't. They don't see that in themselves. They see everyone else as being jacked up, but they themselves don't see that. And so this passage that was just read a second ago, we see a number of things. But tonight I, I want to I sh- look at three particular things. Three problems of moralists is what we're going to be looking at tonight. It's funny because uh, if you've been with us this semester so far, in the first or second half of chapter one, Paul's addressing who? He's addressing the pagans, them. Then he switches to you. And then he continues with you. So he spends twice as much time with you guys, with me, the religious, than he does those out there in the world who, that's what we all, when we think of people who need God, who need Jesus, we always think of them out there. But God spends twice as much time addressing people like you and I who happen to be very religious than he does the irreligious. So look with me in verses, uh, this first chunk here in 17, verses 17 through 22. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, now right off the bat, if I was a Jewish person, and I'm thinking, if, if you call me, if I call myself a Jewish person, if, I mean, of course, like, I mean, look at me, you know, I've got the everything, you know, wearing the garb, I've got the skin color, it's all there. What do you mean, if I'm a Jew? Well, I think we can phrase that, because where he's headed with this is not just the, the nationality, it's all that gets wrapped up with that. So I think the question that, that we can ask ourselves is, but if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, this passage is directly appropriated to you. This is for you. This is, a, this is a sermon, a passage for you if you call yourself a Christian. What he goes on to say is, and rely on the law and boast in God. And you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So two things about these very religious people, about us. We're just going to go ahead and just keep with, with the Christian thing. If you call yourself a Christian and rely on the law. This is the problem. This is the problem here. He's not just attacking morality. Like, there's nothing just wrong with, with trying to be a good person and wanting people in the world to be nice. The problem is when we take that and we form it into moralism. When we take morality we form it into moralism and we create a system by which we throw upon God and say, you have to accept me because I've done this, this, and this, and they haven't. We rely on that. We lean on that. This whole passage is attacking us at our core and, and getting us to ask, what do we lean on? What do you rely on? When you think about why God should accept you, what is it? What's the first thing that pops to your mind? I don't know what it is for you. But if it's anything along the lines of law, then you need to be challenged. So it's not only that, but you you also boast, you brag. You rely on the law, your ability to keep it, and then you brag about it. 
I mean, he continues to challenge. It says in, in verse 19, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he is challenging everything that makes them a religious Jewish person. He's saying, you, you think that you guide the blind. And what he's about to do here is turn it and say, you, you don't guide the blind. You are the blind. You've, you've missed it. It's very similar to what he was saying before this, the passage that we looked at last week. He's saying, you're the blind one. You think that you're the instructor, but you actually need to be instructed yourself. Because here, here's the problem with, with what moralism, moralism does. Moralism says that God will accept me because I'm not like that guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. So it points the finger, like in Luke 18. But as we will see, as this, as this book develops, as God's word to us develops here in Romans, we'll come to see that the gospel doesn't point the finger, but it beats the chest. It beats the chest and says, Be merciful to me, a sinner. So you might be stuck in moralism if you think that God accepts you on the basis of the fact that you have grown up in the Southern Baptist tradition. The fact that you are a pretty good church attender and you've never done that, whatever that is. You might have done some things, but not that. You are probably stuck in a system of moralism. And that's what you're leaning on. That is what you are putting your hope in. That's what you're trusting in. And so you've got to, you've got to get honest with yourself because here's, here's the problem. Look with me in verse 21. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? This is the problem with being, uh, being overly religious and morally decent is you end up tricking yourself. That's the thing. Like you might be sitting there thinking right now, yeah, that's not me. That's not. And it might be. It really might be. And this is not to, to, to cause doubt upon your salvation. That's not what it is. But it is to get you to try to check yourself. And what we see in verse 21 is that the moralist loves the concepts of truth, but's never changed by them. You, you love them. You tell other people about them. You hold them tightly but you don't allow them to sink in and do anything. So like, for instance, when you're sitting during a sermon, listening to a sermon, and the preacher's gone and you're thinking, man, I wish so-and-so could be here to hear that because they always do that. And it's annoying me. And I wish they could have been here to hear that so that they could, you know, repent of their sin and come clean, walk the aisle and just give it over to God, you know, and we have all these other people in our mind. You might even have someone else in your mind right now. As, as I'm talking about this, as I'm talking about the morally decent religious person who relies on their own work, you might have someone else in mind. You might be thinking of Joe Schmo, religious guy. That right there is proof that you have a problem with moralism. 
when you are willing to listen to a sermon and point the finger at someone else. Because I think what, what, what we'll begin to see is that what is, what is true of, of Christians, someone who's really been impacted by the personal work of Christ, is that when the, when the word of God comes to them, they don't deflect it to somebody else. They receive it into themselves and they're moved by it. They're melted by it. They're convicted by it. They're crushed by it. They're lifted up by it. They let it enter into them and do something because they know they need it. And they're looking for it. They're on the hunt for it. And so when they even get close to it, they just absorb it into themselves instead of just putting up this wall, a mirror, and just deflecting it to the person over on the other side of the row. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So the first thing, moralists are never changed by the truths that they affirm. They don't let them sink in. Then the second thing that we see as as we move a little bit further here in verses uh, 23 and 24. says in 23, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So why is that? What, what are they doing? Well, if you pull back a little bit right before that, he's saying, you know, you preach against stealing, but you steal. You say you shouldn't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You hate idols, but you rob temples. And that last one's a little confusing because it's like, well, didn't he just say, you who steal, who, you who preach against stealing, steal, but then he says you rob temples. So is he just saying the same thing? No, I don't think he is. I think what he's saying in that last one there, when he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You tell the people you think that worshiping created things is just stupid. You think it's just idiotic. And then what do you do? You have a secret love for hidden idols in your heart. You still go to the temples when no one's around. You go there, sneak in the back door, pull out the idols. You have a secret love for idols. This is the kind of thing that produces what we see in verses 20, 23 and 24, which brings us to the second point, which is this. Moralists dishonor God and disgust those outside the faith. Verse 23 says, those who boast in the law, those who lean on it, trust in it, rely on it, they dishonor God. Why? Well, it brings honor to God to say that he's the one He's the one who, who is saving. He's the one that I rely on. That brings honor to him. But when we, when we suck that in for ourselves, we dishonor God, and then we end up breaking the law. But then when he says in verse 24, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Reminds me of when, when he says, uh, when Paul also says in Colossians chapter 2, that self-made religion doesn't do anything for you. It's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Self-made religion is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When we get sucked into that, to this religious legalism, it always is distasteful to those outside the faith. Like no person who's outside the faith looks in on a bunch of moralistic people and says, that's what I want. That's how I want to live. Because what happens when, when, we, when we 
trick ourselves into this. This is what we become. We become smug because we're the good people and they're not. We become overly sensitive because our goodness is our righteousness. And so when someone challenges our goodness, we bite back. We become judgmental. We have to step on others to climb up the ladder for ourselves. We have to push others down to lift ourselves up. And we become anxious because we're always second-guessing ourselves. Have we done enough? What is God thinking about me today? So we're smug, judgmental, overly sensitive, and anxious. And he says, this is what happens. When you rely on the law, when you boast in your ability to keep the law, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Those outside the faith look at that and think, who is your God? I mean, that, that's what your God creates. That, that's the best that he's got. I mean, I think about Gandhi when he's famously quoted as saying, I like your Christ, but not your Christian's. And then, you know, you immediately feel like, okay, well, I'm going to fix that. Like if he could just, you know, see me because I'm like working at this. I'm, I'm doing better, trying harder. We just fall deeper into that problem that caused that in the first place. We just push and just dig deeper into religious moralism that way. I mean, we, we can all, everybody in this room can think about somebody who has walked away from the church or has refused to come to church, to come to faith because of someone that they've known that was hypocritical, because of a Christian that they knew that didn't match up their life to Christ. So what do you do? What do you do with this? We have a propensity to think, okay, I just have to, just got to fix this. I I know like next time I'll do better. They won't think that. They'll think differently when they see me. We move towards behavior modification. But as we move into this next passage, we'll see that we can't attack our hypocrisy just with behavior outward modification. It has to come from the heart. It's a matter of the heart. We can't just attack the hypocrisy. We have to attack the reason. Like here's the thing, we're, we're all hypocrites to some degree. So what do we do about it? Well, there's a reason that we're that way. And so we have to attack and address that reason. And you know, when I think about um, what Paul was getting at here, that the people of God should collectively receive the, God, the, the, the grace of God to such a degree that those outside the faith are attracted, that they see that and they, they find it attractive, not repulsive, I see that here. Like, I see that in our community. I see that how gospel doctrine has sunk in individually and it's doing something. And so my question is, why not more? Why can't we see that more? Let's do that more. Let's, let's receive and respond to the gospel even more. Because as we do that, God's name is honored among those outside of the faith. When we allow the gospel of God to sink in and to do a work in us, It changes us from the inside out so that those who don't know Christ 
are at least intrigued. Because the great thing about what the gospel does as opposed to the law, what the law does when we rely on our own ability, it strips away any beauty in human relationships because we become smug and judgmental and all that. But when the gospel comes in, it frees us and it not only beautifies our relationship vertically with God, it then fills in to our relationships horizontally and beautifies those as well. And it's compelling not only within the church as we sharpen one another, but it's compelling to those outside of the church. And so we cannot get stuck in the cul-de-sac of moralism. Like we've got to continue jumping and diving headfirst into the river of the gospel. We cannot get stuck in the cul-de-sac of moralism. And so that comes to each of us individually, that day in and day out, We're facing ourselves. We're not just looking at the mirror and then walking away. We're facing ourselves and taking into account our radical love for the darkness. Taking into account our desperate need for Jesus. And then relying on Christ, his death, his resurrection. Pushing away from relying on ourselves and pushing to rely on Christ. And so that brings us to to the third thing. Here in verses 25 through 29, that moralists, they confuse the sign for the reality. So Paul starts talking about circumcision. Anytime the Bible starts talking about circumcision, we get nervous. Anytime you hear a sermon on that, you start getting nervous because how much detail is he going to go into? Don't worry, I'm not going to go into any detail on Physically, what that is, if you don't know what it is, don't Google it. Don't ask anybody. You'll just figure it out somehow eventually. Um, Paul's attacking the very thing by which, if if it wasn't those things that that they relied on, it was this. It was circumcision. So for us, when when we're saying, if you call yourself a Christian, what is it that we rely on? I think a lot of us really rely on the prayer that we prayed sometime long ago. We, we really rely on the fact that we've been baptized. We, we really rely on the fact that we've walked an aisle, not to get married, but, you know, during a church service. We've walked an aisle. We've done something. And we cling to that. But it's of no value if you break the law. And that's the point. Everybody does. Everybody breaks the law. So you've prayed the prayer and you break the law. You've gotten baptized, and but you break the law. You set up this whole system that you still break. So he continues on in verses 26 saying, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So he's bringing up those who are outside of the faith. Bringing them in. Saying those who have not been circumcised. What happens when they keep the law? Even when we don't. 
Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. He's saying that the sign of circumcision was to represent a reality, a covenant. So when we think about covenants, all throughout the Old Testament, you see all these covenants being made between God and man, between people and other people. And sometimes when, when a covenant was made, there was stipulations. There was a sign of it. And that sign oftentimes would reflect the punishment of what would happen if you broke it. So way back in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham that he's going he's to bring offspring to him, a lot of them. And he says, the way that I'm going to prove to you that I'm actually going to do this is I'm going to take birds, split them in half, spread them apart, and walk through them. And that, would, that sign would signify that if I don't keep my end of the promise, may this be done to me. May I be split in half. God did that. And so with circumcision, this is, this is a cutting off in an intimate way. And it's saying for those who, who don't keep the covenant, that they are going to be cut off. And so he says, but it's just a sign for being brought into the people of God. And that those who are not Christians, who have not walked an aisle, might have faith in Christ, and those who have walked an aisle might not. So in 28, for one who is a Jew who is one, merely one outwardly, circumcision is outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Colossians 2.11 says this, that Christians have been circumcised, not by human hands, but by the circumcision done by Christ. So when you think about that, the circumcision done by Christ, Christ on the cross was cut off from God. So we Christians, we have been circumcised in that way. In Christ, we have been cut off from God and then brought back to God, united with Christ in his resurrection. And this is all an inward thing. To be a Christian is to be one inwardly. To be a Jew is to be one inwardly, not just outwardly. And how does this happen? It happens by the Spirit. I think so many times we're confused about who the Spirit is and what does He do. It's like we get that the Father, He, you know, holds the world in His hands and has plans and, and things. We get that generally, that the Son, He died on the cross, rose, if I believe in him, I can be saved. We, we, some general stuff there. But then when it comes to the spirit, it's like, well, he just like makes people shout in random languages that don't mean, I don't, there's a lot of confusion there. Well, here we get real clarity, at least on part of what the spirit does. He takes the work of Christ and he applies it to you. The work that Christ has done on the cross thousands of years ago, he makes that real to you. He helps you believe it. That this circumcision, a matter of the heart, is by the Spirit. And what does this then do? It causes God to praise you. 
We always think about praising God. That's a normal thing for a Christian to do. Praise God. Well, here it's flipped. So that when this happens, God praises you. Why might that be? Well, I mean, think about what he's saying has happened to you. The work of Christ has been applied to you, and now the Spirit is making that real to you. God looks on that and he smiles and he sings because he is seeing such a beautiful work be done in you, in us. So, you know, that, 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 that fixes our deep need that we feel to be praised. I know so, so many times I feel like I, I just need someone to affirm me, I need somebody to say something good about me. I need, I need to be praised in some sort of way. Well, the great thing about the good news of Jesus is that you are praised perfectly on the basis of another. God praises you because of the work that Christ has done, which has been applied to you by his spirit. And so thanks be to God that is the work of Christ, not our own works that God looks upon, that it's our proximity to Christ that God cares about, that our inward proximity to Christ is what matters. Let's pray. Father, we know that the riches of your glory grant to us strength in our inner being by your spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So God, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would, in our hearts, in our inner man, that you would allow Christ to dwell within us, that you would allow us to lean on him, not our own work, And God, we know that you are able to do this. You are able to do this more than we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And God, may you receive the glory in all of this. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.